take a Bible and let's turn to the book of Ruth together. Book of Ruth, Joshua, Judges, then Ruth, page 222, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Why don't we pray together? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of Christ. We thank you for the fulfillment of your promises. God the Son did become a man and he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ our Lord and we give thanks for him. Now our prayer is in line with what we heard sung earlier, that we would see his glory, that all flesh would see his glory. Reveal him now through your word of truth. Amen. So Ruth is a great little story. We will be in it for our the next four Sundays for Advent. And like any good story, it has its main characters, Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth. It has rising tensions in the plot, a love story developing on the side, its own knight in shining armor. But Ruth is more than just a story. It is revelation. It is God's self-revelation. It is in and through this story we see the divine author and director of history. The Lord God himself guides everything in the story to his desired end. And it is an end that displays his kindness to sinners. It is an end that advances his purpose in Christ for the world. And therefore, it is an end that affects both you and me. Unlike other stories in Scripture, there are no miraculous interventions in in Ruth. No Red Sea splitting, uh, no wall in Jericho falling. The focus also isn't on Israel as an entire nation rising and, and falling. Rather, Ruth is a simple story, just normal, everyday occurrences in the life of one family in Israel. Of course, we'll also see how this family story fits within God's bigger story. It's no accident that Ruth begins with the days of the judges, and it ends with God's faithfulness to David. But one thing to note is that God is working his wise purposes all the time. He is at work not only through the great and the miraculous, he is also working his purposes through the small and the ordinary. Today's message I titled, God Brings Bread to Bethlehem. And that's the movement of chapter 1. It begins with a famine in verse 1. Uh, But it ends with a harvest in verse 22. And such a movement really characterizes the whole book of Ruth. Uh, uh, God brings fullness to those who are empty. Ruth is written for people who are spiritually empty and needing fullness, a fullness that only the Lord can provide. 
Ruth begins with one family moving from Bethlehem to Moab during a dark and empty time. The story begins in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Stop there for a minute. Verse 1 gives us important, important history. The story takes place in the days when the judges ruled. But that's way more than a historical statement. It is also a theological one. God had brought Israel into the promised land, and they were supposed to drive out the inhabitants and not give in to their idolatry. But they didn't do it. Instead, the nation was led astray, and they spiraled into greater and greater and greater spiritual darkness. The days when the judges ruled were very, very dark days, spiritually speaking. Eventually, Israel looked no spiritually different than the pagan nations around them. The book of Judges closes with a fitting description, if you just wanted to turn one page over, the last line of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, says, In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 1 also tells of a famine in the land. And of all places, a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means a house of bread. So we have no bread in the house of bread. The food pantry is empty. What are we to make of this, especially since God had promised to bring Israel into the land of plenty, a land flowing with milk and honey? Well, since we've already noted the spiritually dark days of the judges, it seems safe to say that the famine came as a result of God's covenant curse. If Israel refused to obey God's covenant once they were in the land... God promised to curse them. And one of the curses involved shutting up the skies so that the land produced no fruit. You can see this in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. This was God's way of, of sounding the alarm, of, of warning Israel to return to covenant faithfulness. Anyone reading the book of Ruth under the Mosaic Covenant knew that physical famine in the land signaled, to, signaled a spiritual famine in the people's hearts. This spiritual famine becomes evident in Elimelech's move to Moab. 
Sometimes when we're forced to make decisions as a family, you know, we're presented with equal choices. You could glorify God in New York just as you could just as much as you could glorify God in Dallas. That's not the case here for an Israelite. God rescued Israel to bring them into the land of his choice and his provision and his rule. Running off to Moab to find greener grass was like forsaking God's people, God's place, and God's rule. Instead of remaining in the land and pursuing the Lord in repentance, you run away. And you run away to Moab. Moab was a marked enemy of God and his people. Numbers chapter 24 promised a ruler to rise up within Israel to crush the forehead of Moab. In Numbers 25, Moab led Israel into idolatry. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 forbid any Moabite from entering the Lord's assembly even to the tenth generation because Moab treated Israel so terribly. And closer even to Elimelech's day, in Judges chapter 3, Moab and their king Eglon had oppressed Israel. So this is not a wise move by Elimelech. To make the situation worse, this family runs to Moab for life, but all they encounter is death. Naomi loses her husband and is left a widow in a foreign land. And within a span of ten years, Naomi loses both of her sons and is left with two daughters-in-law from Moab. To lose your husband and sons was to lose everything in ancient Israel. Marrying and having children was the way to maintain the inheritance and to perpetuate your name. It was worse than death to to lose your name. And besides, your husband and your children are the dearest of people to you. Talk about a dark and empty time. Her people were spiritually destitute. She was alienated from her homeland. The house of bread has no bread. Her husband was now gone. The sons she nursed and raised were dead. Naomi was alone with no name, no inheritance, no home, and seemingly without a future hope. But anybody acquainted with the stories of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob have been here before. In Genesis chapter 12, there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to sojourn in Egypt. In Genesis chapter 26, there was a famine in the land, and Isaac went to Gerar to the Philistines. Later in Genesis, it's Jacob who ends up taking his family to Egypt because of a famine. And whether sin was involved or not in these circumstances, they were all situations for sovereign grace to prove triumphant. God's plans to save his people were never frustrated. Rather, in every case, it was in and through the famine that God was still working his salvation, still working to redeem his people, still working to bring them true fullness, still working to make his name famous among the nations. God was always doing a thousand times more than what any of the characters in the story could discern for themselves. And little did Naomi know that God was still working for her salvation. 
And not only hers, but Ruth the Moabites as well. That leads us to the next scene where Naomi returns to Bethlehem because God had brought bread. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. It's here that we find a ray of hope for Naomi. God visiting his people was an expression of hope, deliverance, provision. In Genesis chapter 21, God visited Sarah in her barrenness to give her a son. In Exodus 4, God visited Israel while they were in slavery in Egypt to bring them out of the land. And so also here, the Holy Spirit is using the same language to clue us in to the hope of God's deliverance. The Lord visits His people once again. And notice the story says nothing of the people's repentance here. It's not that they repent and then He provides the bread. He simply chooses out of sheer mercy to provide them bread. Despite what they deserved, he showed kindness by sending bread. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And that's what we observe in Naomi. She returns to the land of Judah. Notice the word return. This idea of returning is the most common verb in the Old Testament to describe repentance. Repentance is is a 180 wherein you leave the things that were separating you from God in order to return to God. Naomi is being depicted here like a prodigal returning home to the Father of mercy. And we know this term is loaded because uh, later at the end in verse 22, it it describes Ruth, the Moabite, as the one who returned from the country of Moab. Ruth never lived in Bethlehem. How could she return? The point is that the return is more than geographical. It is also spiritual. Naomi is like a prodigal returning home to the Father of mercy. His kindness has led her to return and dwell in His place under His rule and with His people. And the Lord who sends bread to Bethlehem is her only hope. The Lord is our only hope too, brothers and sisters. Naomi's soul was empty, but she, she heard of the Lord providing bread in Bethlehem. In the same way, we are empty creatures without the Lord. Are not we often driven to despair by our own sinfulness? Have we not encountered bitter providences ourselves that have stripped us of the ones we loved and left us empty? We have encountered circumstances that have felt like daggers to the heart, that have left us undone, weary, cynical, confused, 
bitter. Apart from God's merciful provision, we are empty too. But the good news is that out of sheer mercy, our Father has sent bread to Bethlehem. Our Father has sent the true bread to Bethlehem. A far greater bread than he sent in Naomi's day. Not just the bread that gives life for a little while and then perishes, but the bread that endures to eternal life. There's a reason the events in Ruth center around Bethlehem and end with a genealogy referring to David. Bethlehem is the city of the great king David, and David is the king who foreshadows Jesus Christ. Matthew 2 says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He was the one to come and take away our sins. For this reason, John calls him the bread of life, or the bread of God, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread that Jesus gave for the life of the world was his own flesh. Jesus is God's ultimate provision for all of our emptiness. In him we find life and hope and grace in times of need. He is our link to heaven's fullness, to a new name, to an eternal inheritance, to a forever home with a forever family. Our response to God's provision in Bethlehem, whatever we might be facing today, is to return to the Lord. It is to repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As you celebrate the Savior's birth this Advent season, how might he be leading you to repent, to return? I mean, if you notice, surrounding the birth narrative of Jesus was a message of repentance, to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his way straight. How is his kindness toward you in Christ leading to repentance? The question for us this season is, are we returning to our loving and merciful Father who has sent bread to Bethlehem? The story of repentance and return continues in verses 8 to 18, but now we see it playing out in Ruth, a foreigner, who remains firm in her commitment to Naomi and thus proves her inclusion uh, within the Lord's covenant people. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they left, lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons... Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. One of the key themes running throughout the book of Ruth is kindness. 
Naomi introduces this theme of kindness in her blessing upon Orpah and Ruth. May the Lord deal kindly with you. The Hebrew word behind kindness is a very significant one in Scripture, chesed. Chesed is translated in our Bibles various ways, such as mercy, steadfast love, kindness. It's a love that remains steadfast even when the other person can't offer anything in return. It includes the idea of help for the helpless. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, we see that, that this, this kindness, this chesed, is something that characterizes the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, in steadfast love. The Lord is a God who provides help for the helpless. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks of our Father being merciful. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and we are to imitate our Father's mercy. The way we do this is not simply by loving those who love us back. The world can show that kind of love. But by loving those who cannot love us back. This is chesed. It's moving beyond duty to compassion filled with love and endurance. These three women are in a helpless situation. They're now widows and have joined the poor ranks of society, but it's Naomi's helplessness in particular that gets emphasized throughout this, this dialogue. Naomi sees that she can do absolutely nothing for Orpah and Ruth. Without a husband, she has no economic support in Israelite society. She'd have to sell her inheritance to someone else in the clan. She has no sons for them to marry. She's past the age to have any sons they would marry. She's helpless and can give nothing. So, since she can't give anything, she looks to the Lord for the kindness. May the Lord deal kindly with you. So far, so good. Naomi knows that God's kindness has no ethnic boundaries. But as Naomi keeps talking, you get the sense that her faith is incomplete. Her repentance isn't complete. Instead of investing, instead of inviting her daughters-in-law to the land where the Lord provides, she urges them back to Moab. So there's this tension we're meant to feel in Naomi's imperfect faith. Keep that in mind while we note something else. The whole dialogue between these women provides an occasion for both Orpah and Ruth to count the cost of showing kindness. They've already been showing kindness. That's clear in verse 8. But their perseverance in kindness is getting tested right here as Naomi is having this dialogue with them. How steadfast would their love prove to be once the reality sinks in that Naomi won't be able to give them anything in Israel? And at that point, Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye. But it says, Ruth clung to her. See, Orpah does what anybody would expect her to do. 
Naomi can't give her a husband and a name and an inheritance. Why bother loving anymore? But Orpah isn't the example of the Lord's kindness. Ruth is. Ruth does the unexpected. Ruth remains loyal in her love to Naomi even when she knows the risks involved. Even when she knows that Naomi has nothing to give her in return. That's true chesed. True kindness. And that's proof that this foreigner has come to know the true God of Israel. That's the whole point of the dialogue, it seems, to emphasize the Lord's kindness working through Ruth toward Naomi. The same gets emphasized as the dialogue continues in verse 15. Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Again, we're going, What are you doing, Naomi? Shut up and bring her back with you. Why would you encourage Ruth to go back to her foreign gods? Again, Naomi's faith is being depicted here as weak at best. But again, the dialogue continues to emphasize something peculiar about Ruth's kindness. That's the whole point of this exchange. In Orpah's case, she was more committed to her idols than the Lord's kindness. You might note that idolatry will always hinder kindness. If you only love those who can love you back, who, 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 love, who can love you back, you, then you might ask yourself, what false gods am I following? What people do I really belong to? Those who know the true God of Israel through Jesus Christ will show relentless kindness. They will love even when the, when the world least expects it. That's proof that we've come to know God. We love because He first loved us. We show mercy and kindness because God has shown us mercy and kindness in Christ. Those who truly know God will love others and love them especially when that same love isn't reciprocated. And that's what Ruth does here. Despite Naomi's relentless arguments for her to return, Ruth's kindness prevails. She even voices her commitment with terms that God normally uses for His own covenant with Israel. In verse 16... But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. I love Ruth. She's just firm in her commitment to the Lord. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. This is a Gentile talking to an Israelite. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. It's kind of funny. Literally, it says, she stopped talking to her. This is covenant commitment right here. Your, your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Don't those words ring a bell? How many times throughout the Old Testament does God say, I will be your God and you shall be my people? Those words belong to Yahweh when he makes a covenant with his people. But here, Ruth, a foreigner of all people, has made the confession her own even in the face of an Israelite's imperfect faith. Ruth is committed to the Lord and his people even to the point of death. And the way that commitment is playing out in her life 
is by forsaking her land and forsaking her people and forsaking her gods to help the helpless. To be a channel of Yahweh's kindness to others, even while knowing that she may get nothing in return from them. So if we zoom out for just a minute, what do we see the Lord doing here? One is that Ruth is the Lord's kindness to Naomi. As we noted from Naomi's prayer in verse 8, kindness is ultimately something that comes from the Lord. If Ruth is now reflecting this kindness to Naomi, she becomes the Lord's kindness to Naomi. She is the tangible I'm coming home with you. I can feel your arm around me kind of kindness to Naomi. Another thing that's transpiring is that God just saved a foreigner in the midst of one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Even through his hard dealings with Naomi, he won for himself another daughter in the faith. More than that, he saved an enemy. Under the law, as we noted earlier, Moabites were not welcome in the Lord's assembly. Before the law, Ruth should have been condemned. But here she finds herself included within the people of God. And I can't help but think, we'll get to this later, of how this is foreshadowing the barriers that Jesus Christ would tear down at the cross, being cut off himself to welcome others in Like Rahab, Ruth is another case of God helping the helpless. Of God showing kindness even to his enemies. I find it a sweet providence that we had a brother from Moab preaching in this pulpit last week. The land of Jordan. The way things are are worded here even reveals Ruth to be a true child of Abraham. Abraham was told to go from his country and his kindred and his father's house. Here we find Ruth doing the same thing. In other words, even in the midst of Israel's spiritual depravity, even in the midst of the bitterest of providences, even in the midst of Naomi's imperfect faith, God was still working out his promise to to Abraham to bless all nations. I find that tremendously encouraging. God is always working to win us and the nations to himself, even in dark times and even when our faith is imperfect. God is always working to win us and the nations to himself, even in dark times and even when our faith is imperfect. I find that encouraging because I see spiritual depravity all around us. I also know how often I sin and mess up. I can look back and point out times when my counsel to others was like Naomi's and came out of imperfect faith. I can look back and see mistakes that I've made as a husband and as a pastor. And yet never once was the Lord's purpose in Christ thwarted. That doesn't give us permission to treat sin lightly, but it does keep us looking to the Lord for rest when we do sin and when we see other people sinning. Don't we see this with Jesus' disciples too? Their faith is fragile. They're always saying the wrong things. They're sleeping while Jesus is sweating drops of blood. 
They forsake him in his most crucial hour, and yet God was still accomplishing their salvation. Jesus never ceased in his love for them, even to the point of taking our place on the cross. Even through the darkest hour of history, when the Son of God was crucified, the Lord was still making, was still working to make every promise for us, yes and amen in Christ. God is always working to win us and the nations to himself, even through dark times and even when our faith is imperfect. Naomi struggles to see this, of course, which brings us to the last scene. Naomi misses the Lord's kindnesses, at least for now. At least for now. This is in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The idea here is that the town was, was just buzzing with excitement. The whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And this is a big deal. I mean, names, a lot of times in our culture, are not, uh, they don't have a, a necessarily a meaning ascribed to them. But in Israel, you named your, your child in light of his future, what you wanted him to become. Naomi's name is pleasant, but here she's saying, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. This is what my future looks like. Bitter. For the Almighty, she says, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of barley harvest. So we began with a famine. We end with a harvest. We began with Bethlehem empty. We end with Bethlehem full. But not everybody feels so full. Naomi says she's still empty. They are words of a woman who is not only grieving but words of a woman who knows God is sovereign over her losses. From her limited human perspective, it feels like God is against her. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Perhaps we can identify with Naomi's perspective and grief. Have there been days when you have thought Naomi's words or said Naomi's words, or something similar. Why are you so against me, Lord? Why are you doing this to me? Why have you allowed this tragedy in my life, this loss in my life? Where are you? What are you doing? The Bible is real life with real people. It walks you right into the heart of grief. But it never leaves us there. It, it also lifts our eyes to the answer in Christ. 
Naomi's grief has blinded her to the Lord's kind provision. She's not seeing the full picture, is she? It was the Lord who brought the bread to Bethlehem. The Lord who turned her back home. The Lord who saved a Moabite using her. The Lord who gave her a loyal daughter-in-law. The Lord who was still with her. She wasn't empty, but Naomi still says that the Lord brought her back empty. Can you imagine what that made Ruth feel like? Ruth just gave up everything for Naomi, and all Naomi can say is, I came back empty. As if to say, what's this foreigner to me? Rude. Naomi saw herself as empty because she was interpreting God's kindness through a very narrow lens. She would only see herself full if God gave her what she wanted, namely her husband and her sons. And it's through that narrow lens that Naomi misses God's kindnesses. We hardly ever see God's kindnesses while we're walking through grief like this, which, as a lesson to all of us, should make us very patient with those who are grieving. You might hear words like this from somebody. And it is not a time to come in with your theological acumen and start correcting all their wrongs. It should also make those of us who are grieving slow to charge God with being against us. God wasn't against Naomi. Of course, we can see that. We're reading this thing, and the narrator is cluing us into all the juicy things happening around her. But God wasn't against Naomi. God was working out a plan that was for Naomi, and that was for Ruth, and that was for the entire world. Naomi viewed her childlessness as emptiness, but the truth was that the Lord had given her a daughter-in-law who was better than seven sons. That's what chapter 4, verse 15 will say. Ruth was better than seven sons. But Naomi cannot see it. She's empty. Naomi interpreted her sojourn in Moab merely by what the Lord had stripped from her. But the Lord had used the whole situation to convert a Gentile and make Ruth a child of Abraham. God was bringing his purposes in Abraham to pass through Naomi, an Israelite, and she couldn't even see it. Naomi wanted to define her future as bitter, but the Lord was filling her future with hope. And at the same time, he was filling our future with hope. Have you ever noticed that Matthew includes Ruth's name in the genealogy of Jesus? Matthew's birth narrative begins with a genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And within that family tree is Ruth. There's also three other women, Tamar and Rahab. 
both Canaanites, and Bathsheba, who married a Hittite, and Ruth, a Moabite. What's the point of that? Why not Sarah or Rebecca? None of these Jews are mentioned. Why these women? The point is that God's kindness in sending Jesus Christ extends not only to Israel, but to all nations. The incorporation of people like Ruth into Jesus' family tree was a way that God was signaling His kindness to save both Israel and the nations, even back during Naomi's day. Naomi's people were walking in spiritual darkness without a king, but God was working a plan to bring a covenant-keeping king, Jesus Christ. Naomi was mourning the death of her husbands and sons, but God was working a plan to bring forth a son who would defeat death altogether with resurrection power. Naomi didn't think much of this Moabite daughter-in-law, but God was working a plan to incorporate people from all nations who would come and worship Christ and be filled with His kindness. Naomi didn't have much of an inheritance, but God was working a plan to bring her an internal an eternal inheritance in Christ. Naomi could only describe her life as bitter, but God was working a plan to bring a son into the world who would drink the true cup of bitterness under God's wrath in her place. God's kindnesses are truly there even when our grief makes them difficult to see. God's kindnesses are truly there even when our grief makes them difficult to see. A lot of times when we face life's hardships, whether it's due to our own sin or the sins of others, whether it's due to a physical ailment or a family tragedy, whether an estranged spouse or a wayward child, some of them, you know, they come come at us all at once. When we encounter the Lord's bitter providence, we can get so focused on what God has taken away from us that we miss the kindnesses He has given us in Christ. The book of Ruth is in our Bibles to keep our arms tight around the neck of our Savior even when we can't see. Even when we can't see what He's doing. It's written so that When your feet are giving way amid life's bitter experiences, you can be reminded that God is still on the throne and that He is still at work and that He he will bring His good purpose in Christ for you to pass. God's story in Christ gives meaning to our present suffering and fills our future with hope. We see this by the way the Bible pulls this one family's story up into God's greater story. Our present sufferings shouldn't be overlooked or ignored, but they have to be, the, they have to be seen within that, that greater context, that greater story. They were, they were written into God's greater story And at the center of that story is a Savior who bears the world's sin through the agony of a cross. All of our sufferings get answered in what Jesus suffers on the cross. 
And in and through that cross, Jesus, Jesus brings forth life from the wor- for, for the world, peace for mankind, and the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. God's story has accounted for all of our problems and all of our brokenness and provides the answers in Jesus Christ. That's where the story in Scripture ends with God wiping away every tear from our eyes. God has filled our future with hope. You may wrestle like Naomi did. It may be that in times of grief we can't see His kindness. Like Naomi, we may even feel like the Lord is against us. But in our grief, let us also remember the answers that He has provided in Christ. The Lord is not against those who love Him. Romans tells us that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That was true for Naomi and Ruth. And it's especially true for us who now know God's revelation in Christ. God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, the Bible says. How will He not also with Him, now risen from the dead, freely give us all things? Trust Him, dear friends. Return to Him. Hold on to Him. He is able to bring fullness from your emptiness. He sent the true bread to Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. Feed on Jesus Christ when your world meets emptiness. Look to His Word and grace and be satisfied in Him. Why don't we pray together?